Good morning, church. Please turn with me in your Bibles to Amos chapter 9. Amos 9. You can find that on page 770 in the Bibles provided for you in the pew. This sounds very loud to me. Is it good for you? If you're happy, I'm happy. Okay. All right. Uh, I'm remind you, this is the end of our stewardship season. Thank you for your generosity, Second Church. We so appreciate your, your generosity to the kingdom of God. And I want, hope that you have been inspired this month as you've celebrated the offering, celebrated where our gifts have gone to help us reimagine this city after the biblical uh, idea that God has for every city and its experience of shalom. And at the end of this service, as is our tradition, we'll give a little time before the final hymn to fill out the commitment cards if you haven't done so already, and we'll pick those up in the, in the middle of the, of the aisle. For now, we're studying here the last chapter of the book of Amos. We've been in this one. We're studying these minor prophets. If you have only joined us recently, we have been studying these small books at the end of the Old Testament that are pretty hard hitting. These are nosy prophets. They stick their nose in all kinds of places into the nitty gritty of our lives in order not to make us feel uncomfortable as an end in itself, but in order that we might experience the fullness of God's grace and be fully useful to him in taking that grace to our neighborhoods, to our nation, to our world. And you can get the impression with some of these prophets that they're grumpy all the time. Amos has been a long series of judgments. There have been five visions. It's organized around those five visions. We, we looked at uh, four of them so far. The last one is here in chapter 9. The first two were visions that God gave Amos that were never realized. These were, were threats that God announced to Amos. And Amos pled for the people of Israel. He said, please do not destroy them. I know they're selfish. I know they've been complacent. They have ignored the poor. They've been oppressive. But Lord, please have mercy on them. God said, okay, you go and warn them. Turn their hearts back to me that I may spare them. I'll just remind you that the very first threat that God gave them in the first vision was of a locust plague, something that we have studied already in the book of Joel, a locust plague. Just tuck that away in the back of your mind to somewhere else in the sermon. But then these other three visions, I should say two and a half visions, were threats of judgment that would come if they didn't repent. And then the last half of the final vision is the surprise I referenced earlier. With full anticipation of experiencing afresh the gospel of God in Jesus Christ in this old, Old Testament book, Turn your eyes with me to the printed text, Amos chapter 9, verse 1. <clears throat> I saw the Lord standing beside the altar, and he said, Strike the capitals until the thresholds shake, and shatter them on the heads of all the people, and those who are left of them I will kill with the sword. Not one of them shall flee away, not one of them shall escape. 
If they dig into Sheol, from there shall my hand take them. If they climb up to heaven, from there I will bring them down. If they hide themselves on the top of Carmel, from there I will search them out and take them. And if they hide from my sight at the bottom of the sea, there I will command the serpent and it shall bite them. If they go into captivity before their enemies, there I will command the sword and it shall kill them. And I will fix my eyes upon them for evil and not for good. The Lord God of hosts, he who touches the earth and it melts and all who dwell in it mourn and all of it rises like the Nile and sinks again like the Nile of Egypt, who builds his upper chambers in the heavens and founds his fault upon the vault upon the earth, who calls for the waters of the sea and pours them out upon the surface of the earth. The Lord is his name. Are you not like the Cushites to me, O people of Israel, declares the Lord? Did I not bring up Israel from the land of Egypt and the Philistines, Philistines from Kaphtor and the Syrians from Kir? Behold, the eyes of the Lord God are upon the sinful kingdom, and I will destroy it from the surface of the ground, except that I will not utterly destroy the house of Jacob, declares the Lord. For behold, I will command... And shake the house of Israel among all the nations as one shakes with a sieve. But no pebble shall fall to the earth. All the sinners of my people shall die by the sword who say disaster shall not overtake or meet us. But in that day, I will raise up the booth of David that is fallen and repair its breaches and raise up its ruins And rebuild it as in the days of old, that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations who are called by my name, declares the Lord, who does this. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes, him who sows the seed. The mountains shall drip sweet wine and all the hills shall flow with it. I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel. They shall rebuild the ruined cities and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink their wine. And they shall make gardens and eat their fruit. I will plant them on their land. They shall never again be uprooted out of the land that I have given them, says the Lord your God. Brothers and sisters, the grass withers and the flower fades. But the word of our God will stand forever. O Lord, open our eyes that we would behold wonderful, restorative, rebuilding things from this expression of the gospel in the Old Testament, many hundreds of years before Christ came, but fulfilled ultimately in him. We pray it in the strong name of Jesus and for his sake. And God's people said together, amen. It was called the most disastrous restorative attempt in art history. There was a priceless piece of art hanging in the Sanctuary of Mercy in Borja, Spain. Uh, Painted somewhere in uh, around 1930, 1932 uh, by... Uh, Elias Garcia Martinez. 
It's a, it's a picture of Jesus. Uh, and its title is Eke Homo. Behold the man. And originally it was a stunning portrait of the revelation of Jesus. Maybe he was thinking, maybe the artist was thinking of that time on Mount of Transfiguration when Jesus was revealed. Very much a human being and yet possessed with the glory of God. One day, a, a dear faithful volunteer in that little church looking around at all the things that needed to be restored in that church that had been neglected for so long. She looked up at that painting that had meant so much to her through the decades, and she thought, it really needs some touching up. So she took it off the wall, and she took uh, her paints, though she had never been trained as a painter, certainly not as an art restorationist, But eyeballing it here and there, she decided she would touch it up. And then she surprised the people as she hung it back up. They were horrified. It was terrible. They brought in the experts, the the professionals immediately. Can anything be done to save this painting? The BBC reporting on it calling it, quoting some of the art restorationists that this was the worst case of an attempted restoration of art in art history. The BBC World News went on to report this, to say it this way. The delicate brushstrokes by Elias Garcia Martinez have been buried under a haphazard splattering of paint. The once dignified portrait of Jesus now resembles a crayon sketch of a very hairy monkey in an ill-fitting tunic. Tragedy. We all, we know from the Bible that we're fallen. We call that sin of our first parents in chapter 3. We call that the fall. What did we fall from? We fell from God's ideal image. We are to reflect of him in knowledge, righteousness, and holiness. We fell from that thinking that we could do it better ourselves. They looked at the fruit that was denied and they said, no, God must be holding out on us. There must be a better way. He must know that if we took of that fruit, then we would experience him, his freedom, his joy, like he experiences it. He's holding out on us. So they took and ate and fell and died. And the rest of history has been God's battle with not only the devil, but with us and our fleshly nature, battling to restore us to the image that he has originally made us in, even to the point of sending his son, the perfect image bearer, in order to live and die and rise in our place. And yet, how do we persist? We persist in thinking, I can reimagine myself. Whatever I can imagine for myself, that is the best. And so I'm going to pursue that. And what does it look like? 
a crayon sketch, an obscuration of the, of the brushstrokes of the master. It's ill-fitting. It doesn't work. Life itself is never satisfying. When we try to restore and rebuild ourselves toward the reimagined image that we have in our heads instead of God's reimagining of us in the image of his son, Jesus. That's why the prophets are so desperate. That's why they're so ultimate, so passionate in what they say. It's because they're reflecting the love of God in Christ, the heavenly father, who says, look what you're doing to yourself. That's not what I desire for you. I desire so much better. In fact, I died to provide so much better. Come back to me. Let me reimagine you in the image of my son. Well, what does that involve? It involves, first of all, removal, this text teaches us. God has to remove things. He has to strip off all that is not of him. That's what is described in verses 1 through 10. Amos has done most of the talking on behalf of God so far. But now God sort of pushes Amos to the side. He walks up and he grabs the altar, these false altars that they built to pagan gods. And he grabs them and God speaks now. And he says, I am going to take these altars, all of these, not, the, not just the literal ones, but everything that you have figuratively built as idol temples to yourselves. And I'm going to shake them from the top. I'm going to shake them from the bottom. I'm going to send floodwaters over them. I'm going to tear it all down to the ground. Seems so harsh, doesn't it? But it could have been so much worse because what is the attitude of these people as he's as he's shaking their false worship out of them. They're coming in presumptuously into his presence. They're saying, ah, behold, look how great we are. Look how wonderful we are. And look how successful we have become in an earlier. When is this Sabbath going to be over? When are these restrictive laws going to be put off away from us? We've obviously proven that we don't need you. Look how successful we are. And they waltz into worship, bringing their sacrifices, tossing them up on the altar as if they're tipping God. Lazily coming into the presence of God, thinking he sure is lucky to have me as one of his followers, as opposed to all these benighted souls around me. Isn't it wonderful that I've been wise enough to choose the true God? And all of these other people make such mistakes, make a mess of their lives. It can be the way even we come into worship. Isn't God lucky to have me? Isn't God, he must be really pleased with me that I would disturb my sleep to come in here and pay him lip service with these hymns and do my best to do the right thing and be a good citizen. 
take care of my family. I wish other people would follow my own example. Everywhere there is this presumption, anything other than I am unworthy. And it took Jesus to die in my place. Anything other than humble, grateful worship. God says he will shake, he will destroy, he'll wipe it away in order that we would return to him. But who is he going to do that for? Who is going to respond to that kind of discipline? There are those he warns who will not respond. When he shakes down everything, even their kingdom, and sends them into exile, many of them will never come back. They'll just blend in with the rest of the culture. They'll go in their way and they'll die eternally. But notice the bright light that comes at the end of verse 8. Except... Except I will not utterly destroy the house of Jacob. There is what he refers to as the evil nation, the sinful kingdom, which is that political kingdom, that kingdom that is set up to worship itself. Those who are bent on ignoring the Lord's call and continuing in their ways, that sinful kingdom, he says, I will utterly destroy. It will never come back into existence, but I will preserve the house of Jacob. Who's he talking about? Now, throughout the Bible, there is this, this, This concept of a remnant, that God is preserving a remnant. It goes all the way back to that original fall in in, in Genesis 3 when he said, "Though Though the serpent will strike at the heel of my line, I will crush its head and I will bring the seed of the woman to bear ultimately in the Messiah. I will preserve a line. We see it over and over. I'll preserve a line through which the Messiah will come. And then into the New Testament, there is this distinction made in Romans 9 and Romans 11 and Galatians 6 between Israel, the nation, and Israel, the people of God trusting in Christ. Israel, who is only Israel Ethnically, he makes a distinction, and Israel, the sons and daughters of Abraham, who are so by faith, not leaving out those who are of ethnic Israel because they're still God's first people. God is still moving with a, with a, a, a strong hand among the Jewish people to bring out a remnant and promises in Romans 9 and 11 to bring a great remnant out. And we are the Gentiles. The Gentiles are those who have been grafted into that one olive tree. God says, though nations will be taken away, though people will be defeated politically, though their material things will be taken away, I will save spiritually my elect. I will save an innumerable group of people who will at the great day stand before my throne and sing holy, holy, holy. I will shake down those things that they are trusting in, not because I love to beat up on those who are arrogant, but rather because I am committed, covenantally committed 
passionately committed to saving an innumerable people for myself. And I'll do what it takes. I'll take away their gods. I'll discipline them if I have to with tears running down God's face, but in order that I might fulfill the prayer like we prayed for Teddy. And he would never know a day he didn't know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. And though he may wander, God would get him home safely. God loves you. He'll remove everything that is in between you and him. And then he starts restoring. This is not a once and for all thing. He's constantly removing, constantly restoring and rebuilding. But he removes in order to restore. That's the focus of verses 11 through 13. He gives us this hint of hope that I will not destroy ultimately, utterly the house of Jacob. And then eventually gets to verse 11. In that day, I will raise up the booth of David that is fallen. Oh, David won't have a political kingdom to follow in his legacy. What I was promising, he's saying all along, what is I was promising is that I will bring another king like David. I'll bring a king through David's line who will be his people's king and build a city on foundations whose architect and builder is God. It will never, never pass away. The whole rest of this chapter is, is full of hope. It's effusive with hope. It's overflowing with hope. It's a hearkening back to chapter 5. Let justice roll down. Let it bubble up out of the people like an overflowing cup and flow into their lives and into others' lives and into the city. Do you know that there are some people who read the Bible critically? That is, they they look at it and they say, you know, you can't really trust everything that the Bible says. And And the Bible is a mishmash of various editors putting things together and so forth. And so they come to passages like this And they say, well, this is obviously not written by Amos because Amos was a grumpy guy. He was a grumpy farmer who was a southerner, went to the north. He got even in a worse mood. And all he could do is think of judgment. And so this can't be from Amos that he would have such bright hope and encouragement and grace for these people. It must be inserted by somebody else. But not even every unbelieving critical scholar in real integrity can say that. I read one critical scholar who said, you know, basically, as much as I hate to admit it, this has to be written by Amos too. And when I look at this, he said, when I look at this passage and I go back through Amos, I see the hints of it. I see the hints of it in chapter 3, verse 2 and 12, and chapter 5, verses 5 and 6, and 14 and 15. God is dropping these hints of saying, look, I am opposing your sin, opposing your apathy, your lack of concern for the poor. I'm opposing it because I love you and I have better designs for you. He said, this fits the pattern. He's been helping us anticipate all along. This is where he's going. And he's driving them to hope 
and restorative grace. This is the God of the Bible. God always conditions his threats of judgment with repentance. Remember Jonah? Forty days and Nineveh will be destroyed. Jonah was eager to preach that message. And God ruined everything for Jonah by saving the whole city. Forty days came and went. He didn't destroy Nineveh. Why? Because judgment, the ultimate end of judgment was to drive people to repentance, to drive people to life, to drive them to flourishing. Even that their, their cattle and their children would flourish. No matter what God is doing in your life, what he's taking away from you, what he's putting his finger on, how much you figure, feel that he has disappointed you, no matter often how often he tells you no, you may always trust that it is his consistent pattern through all of redemptive history and up till now to provide a better yes. Whatever he takes away is to give you even better. Whatever he says no to is in order for you to experience a better yes. You may not experience that better yes in this life. But we have testimonies from the Bible. That those who endured to the end. Who've heard well done good and faithful servant. Like Paul who was transported to heaven and was able to see the glory of God. He says I'm coming back to tell you. Whatever you suffer here. It's not anything worth comparing to the weight of glory that is on the other side. It's hard to believe sometimes in the meantime. It's hard to believe that it's better to be honest in your business dealings, even if it costs you money. But the better yes is a clear conscience, employees and customers who appreciate you, with whom you can have a relationship. It may not feel right in the present day to continue to love your enemy, but it feels good in your conscience. And it will, it will be appropriate. It will feel right in that day that perhaps after the burning coals have been heaped on their head and they've been driven to repentance, you're restored in a relationship. Or in that day, Jesus says, well done, good and faithful servant. It's hard to accept Jesus' no in sexual practices. Preserving yourself for sex within marriage. Or if you're same-sex attracted and, and desire gay sex. It's hard to think that God could deny such a gift, such a pleasure... Until you die. And yet there are those whom God has raised up in the church bold enough to give testimony to say, no, it is a better yes. 
number of years ago, a man named Jeff Chu wrote a book called uh, something like, does, Je- does Jesus Really Love Me? Does Jesus Really Love Me? He, he surveyed a number of, of Christian organizations that, uh, that, that taught uh, various responses to Christians who say that they are same-sex attracted. He went to those extreme fundamentalists who hold up the hateful signs and tell them that God hates them and they're going to hell, all the way to another extreme of a church that only exists for those who practice that kind of sexuality. Jeff Chu, the author with whom I corresponded a bit, argued that that uh, for to, to, to tell people that Jesus really loves them means that we tell them whatever you can imagine for yourself as sexually satisfying, that is what you should pursue. But there was one interview he did that disturbed him. He was with a friend of mine who's a fellow minister at the time in the same denomination. A friend of mine who still has same-sex attraction, but he he married a woman and has children by that woman, still has those desires. And Jeff Chu, interviewing him, had to stop in his tracks and acknowledge that there are some people who say, no matter how strong my desires are, what God desires for me is a better yes. Here's what he said about that interview. On our last morning together, Jake is the name made up for my friend. Jake says something that surprises me. He said, I see my sexuality as a gift from God. I don't think it's just some sort of strange thing that happened to me, like a part of creation where God just wasn't really looking out for me or paying attention. He uses all things. You know, there's that place where Paul writes about the thorn in the flesh. Who knows what Paul is really talking about? But it's been an encouragement for me, and I guess for people with all manner of struggles. If someone could wave a magic wand and make this all go away, would I? My gut says no. One of the most meaningful things my wife has said to me was, when, we, when she said that she was grateful for this in my life because it has made me who I am, I was blown away because I felt really known. We're grateful for our wounds. No matter what your struggle is, no matter what your disappointment No matter what God is saying no to and however wrong it seems and negligent it seems of him to say that. You may trust with the Bible's picture of heaven and also the bold testimonies of these who struggle so profoundly like my friend named Jake here. That God does give a better yes in our restoration. But I can't leave you there because I wouldn't be true to the text, nor would I be true to the pattern of the way God works. 
It may sound like a distinction without a difference, but God not only restores, he rebuilds. He doesn't just bring back barely to life. He brings back to life that becomes life-giving. So Amos goes on to say, not only will I restore, I'll give you more than enough. Not only will I restore your city, but I'll rebuild through you all cities. I'll restore the fortunes of my people Israel. And they shall, they shall, I will make them, the ones I restore, I will make them fellow rebuilders of ruined cities, which they inhabit. And they, in those cities considered ruined, they'll plant vineyards, they'll drink wine, they'll make gardens, eat fruit. I'll plant them in that land. They'll never be uprooted, says the Lord God. What is the hope that we have that gives us the audacity to say God has called us to reimagine the church and the city? We're not imagining it in our minds. We're daring to imagine it according to God's design. And we're giving testimony in rebuilding this city to that permanent city that is coming and will be here. That permanent city that will come with the Lord Jesus when he returns in all of his glory to rebuild us finally and completely and build that kingdom that will never perish, spoil, or fade. And allow us never to look, take away Take away all memory of the past. Any losses will pale in comparison to the restoration and rebuilt kingdom that he's bringing us into. Which includes the enfolding of Gentiles like us. The promise of Edom. That prophecy that was quoted by James when he saw the Holy Spirit falling at Pentecost and later seeing the Gentiles come to faith. He said, this is happening in our time and this kingdom will be continue to be rebuilt all over the world. One new humanity brought out of the many, all for the praise of the glorious grace of Jesus Christ. I said earlier, I wanted you to remember that first threat. God said, I'm going to send a locust plague. And Amos said, please don't do that. Jacob is so little, he can't take it. Please have mercy. And he did. Another time he did send a locust plague. And Joel, utterly destructive, remember, of an entire economy in order to bring people back. When I first began pastoring, I was barely a month or so into pastoring and I was invited over to someone's house to, 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 to meet a new couple who were visiting to us, visiting with us. They were new to us, Tom and Joan. And uh, Tom and Joan were probably in their 60s at the time and had a contagious joy about them even though Tom was... Tom shuffled a bit. He was a little bit absent, a little bit slow in speaking. And uh, they said something strange in that 
meeting, as, as other people around at the dinner party knew them before and knew the, what had happened in their lives. I didn't know what they said, but they, they, they said, Tom and Joan, how are you? How are you doing? You've been through such a hard time. And they, they lit up and Joan said, oh, the Lord has restored the years the locust has eaten. Now, I was a brand new seminary grad. Just about the first time I had ever read Joel was when I had to study it for seminary and had to learn all those names, various names for locusts. And so I thought, what a strange thing. What are they talking about? Restored the years that the locust has eaten. Over the next 15 or so years, I got to know Tom and Joan. I got to know their story. Tom was a very successful, specialized dentist. He'd built up his practice. Maybe he had several practices. He made a lot of money. They had a big house. They had cars. They, had, they took any vacation they wanted to. Their kids went to the best schools. Their kids were given whatever they wanted. And then it all started kind of falling apart. It wasn't bringing the joy in their marriage that they thought that kind of success would. That kind of enablement and spoiling didn't work well with their kids who went off the rails into various addictions. Their marriage was on the rocks. Tom had a nervous breakdown. Lost his whole business. Lost most all of his money. Joan, who had never worked, had to become the breadwinner. They moved into a, an apartment. But through it, Tom came to Jesus. Tom came to Christ. He, now, he would have professed Christ before, but he wasn't living with Christ as his Lord, at least, anyway. But with Christ as his Lord, with his focus Change, forced to change, his relationship with Joan came back. His sons, they still struggled, but there was a repair of their relationships over a decade and a half. And though they died without a penny, Joan said, when Joan said, the Lord has restored the years the locust has eaten, she was speaking as one living in an apartment, being the main breadwinner, still somewhat estranged from her sons, but her husband embracing Christ and living in reality. Where is your treasure? What are you living for? What are you hoping will bring true joy and fulfillment? If it's anything other than Jesus, in addition to Jesus, as the primary goal you are pursuing, the locust is eating its way through whatever you're trusting in. And in order to get you home with joy, God may have to eat it all away, but don't wait. Don't wait even as long as Tom and Joan did. They had 15 years to live 
dedicated to pursuing God's kingdom priorities. Don't wait that long. Lean into it now. Reimagine, ask God to reimagine your life after the pattern of Christ, to ask him to reimagine your home, to, to reimagine your city through you, this church through you. Even if it means that, that painful initial step of removal, the restoration, the rebuilding, and the well done at the great day will be more than worth it. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, thank you for being the Lord and King of the universe who is still a shepherd and still has a body bearing wounds. It enables us to trust you even when the path you're taking us down is difficult and painful. This day now, Lord, when we, when we put our finances in your hands and we say to you, Lord, take my silver and my gold, not a mite would I withhold. We pray that you would be first in our life in all things, in every part of our lives, including our financial stewardship, and use it. Multiply these, these gifts that are small in comparison to what you own, and yet you take it as loaves and fishes and multiply it to accomplish great things in this city and around the world. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.